Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is best-selling author Chris Bojalian, whose latest novel, The Red Lotus, was published March 17th. Chris, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. It's a pleasure to be with you. Before we get to the new novel, I want to ask a little bit about some of your previous work. Uh, we're having the River Run International Film Festival here in Winston-Salem at the moment, and we've been having discussions about turning books into films. What do you think it is about your books that's made some of them attractive film properties? First of all, I think we are in this magnificent golden age of film and television. So much content that we are seeing in movie theaters and on our computers and televisions is originating with novels. And I think that's because it's so much fun to watch a novel translated into six, eight, or ten hours versus trying to shoehorn it into 100 minutes. Mm -hmm. I write novels, and the two elements in my novels that are most important to me are heartbreak and dread. When my books work, and heaven knows they do not always work, (laughs) they are about heartbreak and dread. And when you are looking at all of those great movies and those great TV series that we're seeing streaming or on the networks, really often they are about dread. I mean, my, my two favorite television programs of the last decade are Breaking Bad mm-hmm. and Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And those are two wildly different TV series, but they both share something. Heartbreak and dread. And that is why I think my books adapt really well for TV series and movies. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to seeing your work adapted uh, for the different sizes of screens, you've also seen your work adapted for the stage. A friend of mine told me he really loved the recent adaptation of Midwives. Tell us a little bit about that experience of, of adapting for the stage. I love playwriting, I've discovered. It began a couple years ago. My daughter is Grace Experience. She's spectacularly talented as an actor, and she's just among the smartest readers I've ever met. In any case, the um, screenwriter, Alexander Dinalaris, you know, at Birdman, um, so many other great, great movies, saw Grace and said, okay, I've got a director at some point, Um, write a play that she can be in and I can cast her. And I thought he was kidding, and I didn't think anything of it. So about... Four months later, I got a text from him saying, where's my play? And I said, you were serious? I said, of course I was serious. So I wrote a one-act play for him to direct as part of um, Summer Shorts at 59 East 59 in New York City. It's a two-hander. It's Grace Experience and the amazing actor K.K. Glick, known best for Odd Mom Out, opposite Abby Elliott. And... I learned watching Alexander Dinalaris direct those two actors how much fun it is to be a playwright because 
I don't have to do all the heavy sledding. Yeah, there's a yeah. director, there are actors, um, there's amazing set designers and lighting designers and sound designers. So after I did that experience, um, somebody approached me and wanted to know about whether there were any of my books I wanted to adapt. And I said, well, funny you should mention that. I'm really interested in adapting Midwives. I think it lends itself to a play because one act is the bedroom and the second act is the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love plays like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf where time is linear and there aren't cuts among scenes. It's, yeah. just, it's just literally a, a nightmare in a living room. And so um, I adapted Midwives and, and the director is a guy named David Saint who's just brilliant. And it was among the most fun things I've ever done in my professional life was to watch actors like Ellen McLaughlin, who's the original Angel, and Tony Kushner's Angels yeah, in America, yeah, and Lee Sellers, um, and Army Schultz. And yes, my grace experience being directed by David Saint and bringing midwives to life. What, what a great experience. I've, you know, I've had some of those same reactions to being a playwright and also have recently been approached about adapting a novel and and it's i'm glad to hear somebody that you've had a good experience with it because it's a little daunting to oh, think about you know oh no you you should definitely do it yeah. oh my gosh it is just in in every every imaginable way the most fun you can possibly have because because you know you you don't have to do everything suddenly suddenly okay when we were in the writer when we were doing the table reading for midwives, we spent a few days around the table before David brought everyone into the rehearsal room to, <coughs> excuse me, to start blocking out the play. And I can't tell you how many times either Grace Experience or Ellen McLaughlin or Army Schultz or Lee Seller said, I don't need to say that. I need to say that. And literally, they would just say, say to me, if you don't mind, I think we should just cut that line. And it was fantastic oh, to watch it evolve. Yeah, to have to have all those people being your editor for you. Uh, well, let's let's jump to the Red Lotus. Um, judging by the list on the front page, uh, it looks like this is your 18th novel, and that list has some great titles in it. I've got to say, it's, it's actually it's actually my 20th novel 20th. and 21st book. Okay, great, great. I, I look at I look at titles like The Sleepwalker, The Sandcastle Girls, The Night Strangers. These are like short concise and let and yet they just immediately grab you and draw you in what do you think makes a good title and also for you what comes first the the title or the novel the novel comes first and i've had some really good titles and i've had some really terrible terrible titles one of my favorite books i've written is close your eyes hold hands and oh my gosh what an (laughs) awful title that is no one it does so to answer your question a good title gives you a sense of what the book might be about and that, um, and that title does absolutely nothing to tell you what the book is about. How ridiculous was that title? The Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands is about a teenage girl trying to keep it together after a meltdown in Vermont's lone nuclear plant. She's a cutter. She's an opioid addict. And anyway, so I was at an event at a bookstore the first week the book came out, and a really lovely group of readers in a book group went up to me and said, we are so excited about this book. You have finally gone and done it. And I said, well, thank you. What have I done? And they said, you've written a Christian devotional. (laughs) And and I said, okay, um, nothing against Christian devotionals, but close your eyes, hold hands is many things, but it's not that. Um, So a good title, I believe, more times than not, tells you something about what the book is about, um, is easy to remember and taps into something in our subconscious that matters to us. And in my case, it's something in our subconscious, whether that's heartbreak or dread. Yeah, um, yeah. 
I found the Red Lotus to be both um, a page-turning read and and also well-written. And those are two qualities that don't always necessarily go hand-in-hand. Can you tell us the basic setup of the novel? Um, Sure. The Red Lotus is the story of Alexis Remnick, a New York City ER doctor who goes on a bike tour in Vietnam with her new boyfriend, and he disappears. And in his absence, she discovers that Virtually everything he told her was a lie, and she may be in spectacular amounts of danger. Um, that's that's a pretty good hook. It certainly it certainly hooked me and got me uh, uh, reading well into the night. Uh, the world of emergency medicine, as you sort of quickly mentioned, provides a bit of a backdrop for parts of of the novel. Um, what was it like to research that? Because you you give some real specifics about what that world is like. Well, you know there were. There were two really interesting worlds that I researched for this book. First of all, the world of emergency emergency medicine. ER doctors utterly fascinate me. If there's an ER doctor in your life, immediately ask him or her for the weirdest, craziest thing they have ever seen, and instantly they will tell you about an inappropriate object in an orifice somewhere in the human body. Very often they will pull pull out their phones and they will have an x-ray of the object. Um... They're amazing people because, first of all, they're excellent multitaskers. They might have six or nine or ten different patients in different cubicles. Secondly, they're detectives very, very often, Um, which maybe shouldn't surprise us. One ER doctor I interviewed reminded me that um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who gave us Sherlock Holmes, was... A physician. So much of what an ER doctor does is pattern recognition, just like what Sherlock Holmes did. Observe the trifles because life is in in the details. Is this the coronavirus or is this the flu? Is this this a migraine headache or is this a hangover? Now, obviously, with CT scans and, and all kinds of diagnostic tools, an ER doctor in 2020 is dramatically more capable of solving problems without intuition than um, a physician 70 years ago. But that point notwithstanding, so much of it is still being detective work. And they are so empathetic. Most of the time when an ER doctor sees a patient, we are at our worst. We've either done something monumentally stupid or we've been in a cataclysmic accident. No one expects to be in the ER. Our breath is probably toxic. Um, You know, we might be holding a baby with a diaper that should have been changed 17 hours ago. Um, It's just absolute madness. And ER doctors are so good at managing it. That's, that was one of the things that I just loved researching. And I mean, and, and it's not all, all horrors, too. I mean, the ironic thing about being an ER doctor in New York City is among the two most common reasons you will see a patient on the weekend are A, slicing a bagel, <laughs> and B, tripping over a dog or a cat. <laughs> the, the, other, um, the other world that fascinated me was the lab. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really specifically how we research viruses, and other pathogens, how we create knock-in and knock-out mice or rats to investigate diseases and to find cures. To a certain extent, the Red Lotus is a ticking clock thriller about two things. 
is Alexis going to make it to the end of the book, my ER doctor, and is Alexis going to make it to the end of the book before there's a global pandemic? Right. Um, I, I love the way that you use her um, her ER skills as she is trying to to figure out what happened uh, to Austin, her her boyfriend, um, and, and so much of uh, of how she approaches that comes from from that training. And you mentioned briefly, you mentioned this idea of pattern recognition, but but talk about how she she takes that that ER training and then applies it to this question of what the heck happened to my boyfriend. You know she. She does a couple of things. First of all, she does things in Vietnam when she is meeting with the authorities in Vietnam who are investigating his absence. She's not simply providing them with background on who her boyfriend was. Um, She's providing her opinions at different points as a physician. And then when she returns to New York City without him, she's the one who hires a detective and works with a retired NYPD cop, Armenian-American Ken Serafian, to um, try to figure out what her boyfriend may or may not have been doing in Vietnam. In some cases, it's clinical. It's the kind of things a doctor would do. In some cases, it's the kinds of things a private eye or a detective would do. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, you've, you've mentioned this in passing, and the main action of the book begins in Vietnam. And needless to say, for most Americans, that setting comes with, with quite a bit of baggage. Why did you choose Vietnam, and how did you leverage or upend the expectations that come with that choice for an American reader? One of the points of origin of The Red Lotus was a lunch I had with um, a guy in my church in Vermont who's about 15 years older than me. He's a Vietnam veteran. And Ken Burns' is remarkable special about the Vietnam War had recently aired, and so our conversation rather naturally gravitated there. And I started asking him questions, and he started telling me stories. He's one of those guys in the mid-1960s who um, was a helicopter gunner. Mm-hmm. And so he spent a lot of time sitting on his helmet or his flak jacket to prevent his most private parts from being shot from the ground below. And he started telling me stories, and so many of these stories would end with, I never told my wife that. Mm. I never told my kids that, or I never told anyone that. And I began to think that there, there's a novel in part about the legacy of the Vietnam War. It wouldn't be a war novel per se, because Carl Merlantis and Tim O'Brien and Viet Nguyen have given us those. No one needs me to add another book to that shelf. Um, but I began to have this longing to see what Vietnam is now and to see it the way I see my beloved Vermont. So I went there on a bike. And I remember biking with one of my guides, just a, a terrific cyclist and a terrific guy. And I said to him on our second day together, you know, about hour six or seven of that day's ride, I said, so tell me, what did your mom and dad do in what we call the Vietnam War and you call the American War? And he said, well, they were both Viet Cong. They, they worked building the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm-hmm. They'd build it, you'd bomb it. They'd build it, you'd bomb it. And this went on for years. And I was really struck by that. And then when he added, so many of those buildings you saw in Hanoi, they helped build because they had such great construction skills that after the war, they would be part of a really large construction concern. And then later that day, I was chatting with somebody on the bike tour with me, a hospital administrator, and she said, what's the opposite of a hospice? 
And ever the eager student, I said, um, a NICU, neonatal intensive care unit. And she said, good answer, but completely wrong. The opposite of a hospice is an emergency room. Mm-hmm. In a hospice, we do all that we can to allow someone to die. In an emergency room, we do all that we can to keep them alive. And I realized, okay, I've got my trifecta. The book about Vietnam, a bike tour, and an emergency room, and I was off and running. Yeah. So you actually went to Vietnam on a bike tour, and did you, you know, I love the description of some of the places, because again, we we tend to think of Vietnam through the eyes of Ken Burns, through the eyes of Tim O'Brien, um, but you describe a really beautiful country. What was it like there? Oh, it's a spectacular country. It's kind of like, um, I do not want to um, denigrate or diminish the monumentally important and beautiful history of that country, and in some ways the tragic history of that country. As one, um, as one person said to me when I was asking about whether there was any antipathy toward Americans, um, and he said, look, we fought for independence against the Chinese for 800 years, the French for 80 years, and you for eight. You were a, a footnote. You were a blip. Yes. And while, you know, the 80-800 map isn't, isn't precise, I understood the poetry of, of what he was saying. And I also understood the, you know, the reality of, of the, the millions and millions of, of bomb, pounds of bombs we dropped on Vietnam and the millions of gallons of Agent Orange um, we used to defoliate the country. But okay, so that, that point notwithstanding, Vietnam today is this spectacularly beautiful country filled with great restaurants, great vistas, and really lovely people who just want to be your host. It's like Italy, mm-hmm. um, except in the, the other hemisphere. It's just a remarkable country that really understands Western tourism and really loves having us there. I mean, I, I just loved every moment on my bike. I loved, and then, you know, think about seeing Vietnam on a bike. Is that you, you meet people, you stop mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. to people. And I always had a guide with me who's a great translator and and I just, I just really savored the experience. It was so darn beautiful. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, Agent Orange, and you write in the novel about the, the generational effects of that herbicide and, and others like it. And it's, it's a story I've heard a lot on NPR and other places lately. Can you tell us a little bit about how that plays into the novel? Sure. Um, the thing about Agent Orange is it doesn't just serve to defoliate. It is toxic for any breathing organism. Um, We certainly know the vast numbers of American veterans who have respiratory ailments or increased likelihoods of heart disease or diabetes in all likelihood is because of their exposure to Agent Orange. At least three of the Vietnam veterans I interviewed have been diagnosed by the VA as having ailments attributable to their exposure to Agent Orange. Um, um, The Vietnam Red Cross has chronicled hundreds of thousands of children born with birth defects directly attributable to the American use of Agent Orange. Here's the thing, though. If you're a small mammal with rapid reproductive rates, such as, oh, a rat, and you're 
ancestors in the 1960s didn't die from Agent Orange. Now, hundreds and hundreds of generations later, it's Darwinian, it's, it's, you know, it's natural selection, you are likely to be hardier and stronger and bigger because only the strong survive mm -hmm. natural selection. So when I was imagining this book and I was talking to scientists about genetic engineering, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if part of the Vietnam legacy that we really don't talk about um, are those little four-footed things that, well, you know, scurry through subways in New York City and through, you know, dumps in Vermont and North Carolina and, um, of course, emigrated to North America originally from Asia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you begin this with, uh, this mystery with Alexis's point of view. She's she's standing by the pool waiting for her boyfriend to come back from his a solo bike ride that he's gone on on this particular day. Um, he's late. She's worried. And then you shift and we see through his point of view, although we don't necessarily understand exactly what we're seeing, we see some of, of what's happened. We see some of why he's missing. Um, and it, seems, it strikes me as a bold step in a mystery to reveal you know, a big chunk of what the main character doesn't know so early on. I, I think it works really well, but why did you choose that particular shifting point of view? You know, I don't really write whodunits. When I write a thriller, I tend to write a why done it. Mm -hmm. in, in my most recent novel, The Flight Attendant, Cassie Bode, my flight attendant, she might have some, she might wonder whether she murdered Alexander Sokolov in that hotel room when she was so freaking drunk. And, you know, she might wonder about that. But readers know in chapter two, no. Cassie Bowden did not kill Alex Sokolov. We know from the first page of chapter two that it's Miranda hmm. who, who killed him. Um, so the question is not so much who did it, but why did Miranda kill Alex and how much danger is Cassie in? In the Red Lotus, it's similar in that we know what has happened to Alexis Remnick's boyfriend, Austin, um, but she doesn't. And so it's almost like watching um, somebody we care about deeply heading toward this cliff and not knowing how to stop them. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely moments where you, where you are, as a reader, you're just sort of saying to her, look out, stay away from that person, this is bad news. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, um, and I think, um, I think the reader also feels, uh, you know, just talking about the emotional reaction to the text, this Alexis's, um, her growing anxiety, uh, her sense of anger and betrayal when she discovers that not everything he's told her about himself has been true. Um, how as a writer do you, I don't want to use the word manipulate exactly, but how do you draw out an emotional response in your reader? To a certain extent, it's cause and effect. Um, if a character does this, what's the effect? What's the domino? What's the, the chain reaction? And what are the emotional ramifications? How, uh, how would I feel if I was in that character's position? And I think what, what, you know, what, what most of us do as novelists is we try to walk in our character's shoes. And so for a character like Alexis, that meant, first of all, understanding emotionally how she would respond and how she would respond given what 
she does for a living. One of the things that I, I don't think we talk about enough as novelists is that the reality is that so much of what we are as human beings are what we do. Um, you know, so we, we talk so often, oh, don't, don't define yourself about what you do, but the fact, by what you do, but the fact is we do. Um, we choose professions often because of who we are, and then it exacerbates or exemplifies why we were perfect to be in that particular role. I mentioned two TV shows I just love earlier. I think Don Draper, the John Hamm character mm -hmm. in, in Mad Men. Um, he's drawn to advertising, and then it makes him even more Don Draper-esque. So I don't think manipulate is, is a bad word. The reality is that what we do is to try to create um, a moment, and then how as human beings do we respond to it? Right, right. The, there, we've been talking mostly about some of the, the major characters in the story, and uh, but there are minor characters as well. And one of those is Alexis's mother. And I just love the way you, you so quickly and with this this great precision describe her in, in just a few sentences uh, that we feel like we know her. You say she's loving without being compassionate, caring without being kind. I mean, those like six words or or eight words are just, I think, really sort of get cut to the core of her. So so what is the trick, if there is one, or, or how do you approach these, the, the task of creating um, – a believable and living secondary character when you really only have a few sentences or a paragraph here and there to, to bring them to life. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting tightrope. And sometimes I honestly think I overdo it and tell my readers more about my secondary characters than they, they need to know. For example, in Anna Karenina, Tolstoy really only tells us two things about her. She's a little heavy set or plump, and she's got dark curly hair. That's all he describes. That's all we know about what Anna Karenina looks like in that great doorstop yeah. of a novel. <laughs> um, but, but we all think we know what Anna Karenina looks like, um, and that's a testimony to Tolstoy. So the tightrope is how do you bring this secondary or minor character to life, what, is the, what are the one or two physical details that you need? Because you don't need all of them. You don't need to describe an Adam's apple. You don't need to describe every detail of, you know, hair, cheekbones, or eye color. But you've got to pick something. And what is the most salient emotional characteristic that matters both in terms of the narrative arc of the book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, to make that character stand out from everyone else? So in the case of Alexis's um, mother, and I never, I should tell you that I never know where my books are going and I never know how they're going to end when I start them. The only thing I wanted to do with her um, was to make her sort of a foil for Alexis. Mm -hmm. So this sort of the, the classic kind of mother who would make every 30 something daughter absolutely roll her eyes while having a Negroni or a glass of wine um, with a friend in a bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she, cert she certainly is that. And then, and it also provides that, to me, they're, uh, you know, Alexis feels more and more isolated in some ways as, as, she, as she gets into this mystery. She's not sure who she can talk to. 
in some cases, people would go, oh, we'll talk to your mother, you know, and you make it clear from early on why that's not really the best option. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. That, that is very often not the best. There are at least five other people that would be better for her to speak with. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alexis has a difficult past and has a history of, of self-harm. And we, or at least me as a reader, um, I was afraid at times that she hadn't totally left that behind. Um, and t- tell us about uh, about her cutting, how that tendency gives us that much more sense of how on edge she is and, and why you wanted to make that a part of her character. Yeah. You may... My daughter, who I mentioned earlier, once said something that was really smart after she read the manuscript for Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, which she's going to be narrating for Penguin Random House Audio. And she said, Dad, take this as a compliment because I mean it that way. But I think your sweet spot as a writer is seriously messed up young women. <laughs> and, and Alexis is, is, like, is, is part of that, that realm. Um, I love Alexis. And she's not a wounded bird. I mean, Cassie Bowden, the flight attendant, is a wounded bird. Emily Shepard in Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands is a wounded bird. Um, Alexandra in the guest room is a wounded bird. But Alexis isn't. But that doesn't mean that she hasn't, at different times in her life, endured some pretty heavy sledding and had to navigate some deep emotional turbulence. Um, and I, I think that in some ways makes her more likable because she's not, you know, a Marvel superhero. She's not Black Widow. She's not Wonder Woman. She has her own private human demons. Yeah. And I think there's something about the fact that she has these hidden scars and yet she's this, when she's at work, when she's in the emergency room, there's this she is almost like a superhero. And yet we know that underneath those scrubs, you know, there, there are signs of, uh, of sadness of, of, you know, her past that she's literally scarred by it. Yep. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, and is there, was there a particular reason in particular, why, why cutting instead of some other type of scalpel surgery? Uh, ER, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's something about when I was thinking about, what are all of the ways and what are, what are all of the, I think, I think we had to do with the fact that I was making her a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So she comes back from Vietnam and she lives in New York and a lot of this novel is set, uh, in New York city. You live, you live in Vermont. Have you lived in New York? It's a very, I mean, I love the New Yorkiness of the New York part of the novel. Um, how, how did you get there? Um, well, actually, actually I do spend a lot of time in New York okay. and, um, I, I, she lives, not in my neighborhood, but in one of my favorite neighborhoods, and that sets the, the East Village. Yeah. I've set three of my last four books very largely in New York City. The Guest Room, The Flight Attendant, and The Red Lotus, or at least set half in New York City. Um, it was a natural, though, to set The Red Lotus in New York City because it's about a possible pandemic and pathogens. And when, this, but when I was first thinking about this book, there were two articles I saw in New York newspapers that fascinated me. There was an article in the New York Times that said there are at least eight different antibiotic-resistant pathogens um, found in New York City mice that are transmittable to humans. And the New York Post had an article, and it was rich with tabloid outrage, 
about the eight most rat-infested apartments in New York City. And so I um, called up a guy at Echo Health Alliance in New York City who was quoted in one of those in the New York Times article, Dr. Peter Dazek, and he's talked about all of the different pathogens found in the New York City subways, including, yes, the plague. Now, I knew that the plague existed in prairie dogs out west, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't know that it existed. Swabs had been found in 2014 in New York City subways. And, then, and he went on to, to explain to me that New York City is a interesting spot to imagine a pandemic because of all of the people who come and go and that everyone uses mass transportation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, that, that was why I decided to set the Red Lotus in, in New York. Um, the flight attendant is set largely you know, in, in New York, but it could have been set in any place where there's a major airline hub. You know, the you and I are talking on the the third of March. The book's coming out in a couple of weeks. This podcast will, will air a week or so after that. Um, I just got back from the grocery store, and all of the uh, disinfectant wipes were sold out. Um, all, all of the um, antibacterial things have all been sold out. How, obviously, you don't plan these things as a, as a novelist, but uh, do you sit there and think? Wow! Uh, either this Corona thing is going to make my novel seem not good, or this is going to sell really well because of this, or is this something you just don't give any thought to at all? If you'd said to me in 2018 when I started writing this novel that in March of 2020, when it was published, that we would be looking at a viral pandemic with a two percent fatality rate. Um, I would have been devastated. I would have been devastated because it's just, you don't want to hear anyone um, getting sick or you don't want to see any family losing someone that they love. I think if I want to be in the zeitgeist and ahead of the curve, I think the next book I need to write needs to be about a cure for a cataclysmic disease instead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So the Red Lotus, as I started to think about, okay, on a a deeper level, what did I think this, this book was about? You know, one thing it's about is the secrets that we keep and the fact that we can never fully know anyone. I mean, Alexis and Austin, yes, they've only been dating for a few months, but she thinks she knows him a lot better than she really does. Um, How does the fact that we can't even completely know the people closest to us work to the advantage of somebody writing a thriller? Um, It's a great question. The fact that we all have secrets is just catnip for a novelist, especially a novelist who's, who's writing a, a thriller. Um, I think it would be really interesting sometimes to be a psychiatrist or psychologist, to just sort of sit there and nod and, and just learn about the demons that, that we all have. Um, and being a novelist is nothing at all like it because A, we don't cure anyone, and B, we're just making this stuff up. Yeah. But it does it does remind us that we're all a mess. All of us are a mess in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's one more aspect of this narrative that we haven't t- uh, touched on just yet, and that is every now and then uh, the, the sort of standard novel narration uh, is interrupted by these short factual uh, sections that are about viral infections, rats, 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, tell us about the idea of, of using that device to, to get the reader some of the sort of background information that is helpful for them to know as they assess the risk, not just to Alexis, but to, to everybody. It's actually a, a technique that I first used way back in 1997 with my novel, Midwives. Most of Midwives is narrated by the midwife's daughter, Connie Danforth. Um, the midwife, Sybil Danforth, is, has passed away from lung cancer when Connie begins her narrative. But I wanted readers to ha- hear Sybil Danforth's voice. I felt that she needed to be a presence in the book. So I decided to begin each chapter with something from one of Sybil Danforth's private notebooks, sort of interstitial pages, as they, they say in publishing. And I like the fact that it did two things. It allowed us to meet a character who's dead, and it allowed us to drop in different elements of foreshadowing and what I would now call dread. I didn't think think about dread in 1997 the way I do now. And I've used it a lot. I remember in Transistor Radio using it because I needed to explain to readers the background of sexual reassignment surgery in the year That book came out in the year 2000, Um, but I couldn't have it in dialogue because it would sound so stilted, so after-school special. We're Mm -hmm. now going to educate you about um, this kind of surgery. So instead, I created a national public radio All Things Considered series about it with Linda Wertheimer, um, quite literally interview fiction, you know, the actual, I use the actual name Linda Wertheimer, um, but interviewing fictional experts on sexual reassignment surgery. And I just love the way that, that that could educate readers without sounding stilted in an actual scene. And that's sort of what I was doing with the red Lotus with those pages. But I hope also, again, it adds an element of dread because you don't know who this is speaking and clearly they are pretty dark. Yeah. Their, their, you know, their sensibility is pretty evil. And, and I mean, that's another one of those situations where you want to yell out to Alexis, you, you need to read these pages that came right before your chapter. So, because it's, yes. uh, yep. you know, it's, yep. again, it's information that, uh, that the reader knows that the, that the main character doesn't. Um, one of the reasons that Alexis has a hard time finding out about Austin and what's going on in his life and where he might be is that he doesn't use social media. And um, I don't know about you, but for me as an author, you know, my publicity team all the time talks about how we're going to use social media and we have to do this all the time. And yet we still have this, we hear the same concerns also that, that Austin voices. And I'm just curious about what your take is on, on social media. Do you, do you use it or you're more in Austin's uh, camp? I use social media all the time. I am active on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Goodreads, and Litzy. And I do it because it's a great way to interact with my readers mm-hmm. um, and to be an authentic presence. I understand that there are, is a downside to it in terms of um, the social network companies knowing everything about me. I get that. But I also know that in 2020, it's a critical way to interact with readers um, who would like to have discussions about books. Obviously, it's also got its 
emotionally toxic some of it's too. I mean, I don't think I go a day on the social networks without somebody telling me what a terrible writer I am or, you know, somebody telling me that my books are just, just travesties. But, um, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that that's okay. There's nothing really I can do about that and yeah, you yeah. can't please everyone. Yeah. I, I was thrilled when I opened the, the the first page of this novel to see that one of the people to whom it is dedicated uh, is a friend of mine named Todd Doughty, who's a publicist at Doubleday. Um, can you tell us, uh, as a final question, just a little bit about the relationship between a best-selling novelist and his publicist? Oh, sure. I mean, first of all, well, the book is dedicated um, to Todd because he's just one of the kindest, gentlest, hardest working people on the planet. And he and Jen Marshall, who is also it's dedicated to, is one of my paperback publicists for years, are not just so wise and patient, but um, they're sort of, you know, father and mother confessors just enduring all of the um, um, the pain and agony of, of a novelist. You know, what works and what doesn't work. They're, they're the ones who are on the front lines who are, well, you know, talking to you about saying, we'd really like you to, you know, chat with Chris. He's interesting. Or, you know, we'd like you to talk with Rufy Thorpe. She's really interesting. And Todd is for years has always had my back in that regard. And they also do so much of the um, incredibly unglamorous work of figuring out which markets you're going to visit on book tour and why it logistically makes sense, and then working to get you there. Um, and, and when all of the flights are canceled, they're the ones who take care of you. I mean, I was on a book tour on 9-11 and would be trapped in Denver for a week, and it was a publicist at Penguin Random House who, you know, from Penguin Random House took care of me and made sure that I had a hotel and made sure that I was um, keeping my emotional sanity. Um, that's why the book is dedicated to such a wonderful, wonderful man like Todd. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into you. What word do you love to work into your writing? Cerulean. I love the phonetics of cerulean, and I love that color blue. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Simply. I use it too much myself, and often when I see it in other books, I realize that it's one of those adverbs I use too much and don't need. Where's your favorite place to write? In my study in Vermont with my cat Horton in my lap and my dog Jessie um, asleep in her dog bed behind me. Where could you never write? I'm not sure there's any place I could never write. I have written in really loud coffee shops, and I have written on airplanes, and I have written on trains, and I have even written in cars. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I am going to say... You know, I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment on it, because I can't think of any rule of grammar that I violate consistently. I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I know that my copy editors can find myriad mistakes that I made, but I don't know wh- what is the one I violate the most. What was the first book you remember reading? Mr. Popper's Penguins. What are you reading now? Uh, I'm right now reading, reading right now um, Long Bright River by Liz Moore, and it is destroying me. It is utterly fantastic. And I'm about to finish Max Hastings' History of the Vietnam War, Vietnam. What book would you like to have written? 
I would love to have written The Great Gatsby. I would love to have written half of Emily Dickinson's poems. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? A memoir of my childhood. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I have gotten the best Red Lotus tattoo. (laughs) This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Chris Bojalian, whose latest novel, The Red Lotus, is in stores now. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My interview with Chris Bojalian was recorded on March 3rd, 2020, and is posting on April 15th. Needless to say, a lot has changed in those six weeks, and parts of the interview have taken on a relevance I didn't have at the time we recorded. The River Run Film Festival that I mentioned had to be canceled this year, but River Run continues to do great work, and I encourage you to support them. One thing that hasn't changed is that our sponsor, Bookmarks, continues to provide great books and great programs. You can order books online, and shipping is free on all orders over $25. And be sure to check out the lineup of virtual programming. In May, I'll be leading a book discussion about my novel, The Lost Book of the Grail, and I'll be giving a tour of my rare book collection. And of course, this is a great time to catch up on past episodes of Inside the Writer's Studio. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Tom Calvin, who had to cancel his April Bookmarks event. We'll be discussing his book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell. Be sure to join us. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.